I'm going to have uh, Gregory, who's having his tie inspected, since he did such a good job on uh, the Song of Ascent, Psalm 126, last night, have him uh, do that again. Okay. A song I can't hear you. Uh, when Anna and I will return the captivity of Zion, we will be like dreamers. Then our mouths will be filled with laughter and our tongue with glad song. Then they will declare among the nations that Anai has done greatly with these, that Anai has done greatly with us. We were gladdened. Why and I return our captivity like springs in the desert? Those who tearfully sow will reap in glad song. He who bears the measure of seeds walks along weeping, but will return in exaltation a bearer of his sheaves. May my mouth declare the praise of Adonai, and may all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. We will bless God from this time and forever. Hallelujah. Give thanks to God, for he is good, his kindness endures forever. Who can express the mighty acts of Adonai? Who can declare all his praise? Behold, I am prepared and ready to perform the positive commandment of Birkat Hamazon, for it is said, and you shall eat, and you shall be satisfied, and you shall bless Adonai your God for the good land which he gave you. Gentlemen, let us bless. Blessed be the name of Adonai from this time and forever. Blessed be the name of Adonai from this time and forever. With the permission of the distinguished people present, let us bless our God, he of whose we have eaten. Blessed is our God, he is whose we have eaten, and through whose goodness we live. Blessed is our God, he of whose we have eaten, and through whose goodness we live. Blessed is he, and blessed is his name. Why don't you read number one instead of us singing? Because there's so many extra things today. Well, you could, you could sing it, but you don't have to. Okay. Blessed be the universe who nourishes the entire world with his goodness, with grace, with kindness, and with mercy. Gives nourishment to all flesh, his kindness is eternal. And through his great goodness, we have never lacked, and may we never lack nourishment for all eternity. For the sake of his great name, because he is God who nourishes and sustains all, but if it's all, he prepares food for all of his creatures that he's created. <coughs> As it is said, you open your hands and satisfy the desire of every living thing. Baruch atah Adonai. Baruch Shalom. Amen. We thank you, Adonai, our God, because you have given to our forefathers as a heritage a desirable, good, and spacious land, because you removed us, Adonai, our God, from the land of Mitzrayim, and you redeemed us from the house of bondage for your covenant that you sealed in our flesh for your Torah that you taught us, and for your statutes that you made known to us, for life, grace, and loving kindness that you granted us, and for the provision of food with which you nourish and sustain us constantly in every day, and every season, and in every hour. Outstanding. Timothy, in the pink. Should I stand up? I would love it when you stand. <laughs> Thank you, you for coming. Don't get your head on the fan, then. <laughs> for the miracles and for salvation and for the mighty deeds, and for the victories, and the wonders, and the consultations, and for the battles that you performed for our forefathers in those days at this time. Left-hand side. In the days of Metasiahu, the son of Yochanan, the high priest, the Hasmonean and his sons, when the wicked Greek kingdom rose up against your people Israel, to make them forget your Torah, and compel them to stray from your statutes and your will. You and your great mercy stood up for them in this time of their distress. You took up their grievance, judged their claim, and avenged their wrong. You delivered the strong into the hands of the weak, the many into the hands of the few, the impure into the hands of the pure, the wicked into the hands of the righteous, and the wanton into the hands of the diligent, students of your Torah. For yourself you made a great and holy name in your world. And for your people, Israel, you worked a great victory 
in salvation as the very day. Thereafter your children came to the holy of holies of your house, cleansed your temple, purified your, the sight of your holiness, and kindled lights in the courtyards of your sanctuary. Right hand side. And they established. Oh, and they established these eight days with praise and thanksgiving, and you performed for them miracle and wonder. We shall give thanks to your great name forever. Back to the dream. For all that on I, our, our God, we thank you and bless you. May your name be blessed by the mouth of all living, continuously for all eternity, as it is written, and you shall eat, and you shall be satisfied, and you shall bless Adonai, your God, for the good land that he gave you. Blessed are you, Adonai, for the land and for the nourishment. Amen. Don't you love listening to him read the scriptures? Jeez. Where's Isaac? Have mercy, we beg you, Adonai, our God, on Israel, your people, on Jerusalem, your city, on Zion, the resting place of your glory, on the monarchy of the house of David, your anointed, and on the great and holy house upon which your name is called. Our God, our Father, tend us, nourish us, sustain us, support us, relieve us. Adonai, our God, grant us speedy relief from all our troubles. Please make us not needful, Adonai, our God, of the gifts of human hands, nor of their loans, but only of your hand that is full, open, holy, and generous, that we not feel inner shame, nor be humiliated. Humiliated forever and ever. Thank you. Yonatan Hagadol on the Sabbath. May it please you, Adonai, our God, give us rest through your commandments and through the commandment of the seventh day, this great and holy Sabbath. For this day is great and holy before you to rest on it and to be content on it in love as ordained by your will. May it be your will, Adonai, our God, that there be no, that there be no distress, grief, or lament on this day of our contentment. And show us, Adonai, our God, the consolation of Zion, your city, the rebuilding of Jerusalem, city of your holiness. For you are the master of salvation and master of consolation. Thank you. Scott on Rosh Kodesh. Our God and God of our forefathers, may their rise, come, reach, be noted, be favored, be heard, be considered, and be remembered. The remembrance and consideration of ourselves, the remembrance of our forefathers, the remembrance of Messiah Yeshua, the son of David, your servant, the remembrance of Yerushalayim, the city of your holiness, and the remembrance of your entire people, the family of Israel, before you for deliverance, for goodness, for grace, for kindness, for compassion, for life, and for peace on this day of Rosh Kodesh. Remember us on it, Adonai, our God, for goodness. Amen. Consider us on it for blessing. Amen. And help us on it for life. Amen. In the matter of salvation and compassion, pity, be gracious and compassionate with us, and help us, for our eyes are turned to you, because you are God, the gracious and compassionate kings. Joshua, bring it home. Rebuild Jerusalem, the holy city, sooner our days. Blessed are you, Adonai, who rebuilds Jerusalem in his mercy. Amen. Top of page 19. Joshua the Red. Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, the Almighty, our Father, our King, our Sovereign, our Creator, our Redeemer, our Maker, our Holy One. Holy One of Jacob, our Shepherd, the Shepherd of Israel, the God, or excuse me, the King who is good and who does good for all, for every day, for every single, for every single day He did good. He does good and He will do good to us. He is bountiful with us. He is bountiful. What? He is bountiful with us, and He will forever be bountiful with us, with grace and with kindness and with mercy, with relief, with salvation. Release, salvation, success, blessing, health, consolation, sustenance, support, mercy, life, peace, and all good. And of, and of all good, the things may be forever delivered us. May he do what? 
May he forever deliver us. Really? May he never, May he never deprive us. <laughs> but I do hope that he delivers us. All right. Yochanan. Arachamah, may he reign over us forever. Amen. Arachamah, may he be blessed in heaven and on earth. Amen. Arachamah, may he be praised throughout all generations. May he be glorified through us forever to the ultimate end. Be honored through us forever for all eternity. Amen. Arachamah, may he sustain us in honor. Amen. Arachamah, may he break the yoke of oppression from our necks and guide us direct to our land. Amen. Arachamah, may he send us abundant blessings to this house and on this table. Amen. May he send us Eliyahu Hanabi. He is remembered for good to proclaim to us good tidings, salvations, and consolations. Amen. May it be God's will that this host not be shamed or humiliated in this world or in the world to come. May he be successful in all his dealings. May his dealings be successful and conveniently close at hand. May no evil impediment reign over his hands and work. May no semblance of sin or iniquitous thoughts attach itself to him for this time and forever. Hence the idea of opening the door for you people to come over. There it is. May he bless the master of this house, the lady of this house, the other house, the family, and all that is theirs. Harakaman, may he bless me, my wife, my children, my grandchildren. And all that is mine, together, ours and all that is ours, just as our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were blessed in everything, from everything, with everything. So may bless us all together with perfect blessing, and let us say, Amen. Mr. Spurlock. On high, may merit be pleaded upon them, upon us, for a safe, and upon us, for a safe guard of peace. May we receive a blessing from Adonai and just kindness from the God of our salvation and find favor and good understanding in the eyes of God and man. On the Sabbath in pink, sir. <clears throat> Uh, the compassion one, may he cause us to inherit the day that is com a com will be a completely that will be completely a Sabbath and a rest day for eternal life. Amen. Amen. And Rosh Kodesh. The compassion one, may he inaugurate this month upon us for goodness and for blessing. Amen. Amen. And at the bottom. The compassion one, may he perform uh, may he perform for us miracles and wonders as he performed for our forefathers in those days at this time. Amen. Amen. Hey, go on, sir. The compassion one, may he make us worthy of the days of Messiah Yeshua and the life of the world to come. Amen. Amen. Uh, he, who is? He who is a tower of salvation to his king and does kindness for his anointed to David and to his descendants forever. He who makes peace in his heights, may he make peace upon us and upon all Israel. Now respond. Amen. Amen. Fear Adonai you, his holy ones, for there is no deprivation for his reverent ones. Young lions may want and hunger, but those who seek Adonai will not lack any good. Give thanks to Adonai, for he is good. His kindness endures forever. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. Blessed is the man who trusts in Adonai. Then Adonai will be his security. I was a youth and, I, and also have aged, and I have not seen a righteous man forsaken with his children begging for bread. Adonai will give might to his people. Adonai will bless his people with peace. Amen. Thank you. Pass your books back to Joshua Martin, who is on collection duty. Yes, ma'am. Can we play one song? Yeah, can you, uh, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Can you, do you have a, a, a speaker? I do have a speaker. Um, I've got, do you have Bluetooth there? Of course you do. Stand by, ma'am. Stand by, ma'am. Stand by. Yeah, 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 I got you. I'm with you. I understand. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so if you will actually, connect... If you'll tell him the song, he probably has it. Yeah, that's probably true, but go ahead. If you'll open your settings, go to Bluetooth. Go to, yeah, we do have to be on... Yeah, Bluetooth. Settings, Bluetooth, and then connect to family room. Family room. Family room. 
It's a U.S. boom and a PPL and a jam and a jam touch and a J pulse. All of those must be somewhere here in the house. No, 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 no. Can I? We can try to give you a suspended rib. Wow, it's kind of tiny, is it? Okay. Normal. It's the same one that does. Just hit pause whenever you like. <laughs> oh, that's what I said. He has it. <laughs> well, jack it up a little bit. I mean, come on. Not quite that much. <laughs> well, maybe a little more than that.
have to press That's stop. That's my blessing for y'all. Amen. Thank you. Okay. A um, couple things. Real quick, and then we'll get Joshua up so that we can uh, get our, our discussion going. First is I, I, I have just such a, a respect and admiration and just a, a, you know, a fairly good, longingly, strongingly uh, um, good affection for that guy with the funny hat. And uh, it, it gives me an opportunity to honor him, to honor his mom. And Thank you for that. it also, I think, should be an example to you that we honor those who study the scripture and who actually come from good stock. Um, this is part of what we're about. This is, this is what Bella Torah represents, is that concept of multi-generational faithfulness, recognizing the hoary head, even if it's young. Uh, <coughs> And this is what you should be teaching your children. And that's, that's what we do. So that's probably more for the folks that are listening or watching online than for you guys, but uh, I think it's, it's noteworthy. Secondly is it's Rosh Kodesh. And I've been convicted this year. I don't know about you, but when Rosh Kodesh comes, you know, we just really um, go, yeah. <laughs> Lived another 30. That was cool. But that's about it. And... There are a bunch of traditions associated with Rosh Kodesh, and I'm going to try and uh, put some of those uh, in place uh, in this next coming Julian calendar year. Um, one of which is just traditionally, this is just a day where moms, wives get to just chill and take off and not have to work. And uh, I don't know about you. Well, I do know about you. You must recognize that your mom, your wife, is just working her butt off all the time. And you never go hungry, and there's never a problem with what needs to happen around the house. And um, the ladies that are represented in this, in this room are some of the finest women I know on the planet. So if we've got given by God and God's people a tradition of giving them a day off to just not have to worry about anything, Guys, maybe you need to get in there and wash the dishes. Figure out how to cook macaroni and cheese or whatever it is. Um, but I'm going to try and, and, and really make an effort to give my wife a break. And uh, you might want to take that to heart. You know, it can't be bad for your marriage, I'm thinking. You know. um, so Rosh Kodesh, great, uh, great deal. And I'm, I was glad. I think we, we probably messed it up, but we read more about Rosh Kodesh and David and Jonathan during the tourist service than we normally would. It's probably supposed to be two or three verses, and, and we seem to have you know, done a chapter and a half on, on shooting arrows and you know, lads running to get them and so forth. But it's something we should take advantage of. And it is a known thing, and it's been known in Israel for a very, very long time how to calculate and know when the new moon will be. And sometimes it is a two-day deal, as it is now. So we have Rosh Kodesh on the 30th of the month, and we'll have it again tomorrow on the first of the month. So let's take advantage of that. Secondly, and very quickly then, Hanukkah. I personally believe that Hanukkah is something that every Gentile in the church, associated with the church, associated with Messiah, whatever you want to put it, should be celebrating. The fact that we need to rededicate, the fact that we need to stand up against what our society is pushing at us, is something that we believe. Yes, sir. 
I've got a client who is the pastor of a church, and we care for the church. And I got called in there a couple of months ago, and he said, I am concerned because I am preaching against homosexuality and against all this other stuff that's coming at us from the culture and from the media, and you need to help me because we're going to be attacked. And he's right. That's Hanukkah. Where we're told, you know, it's just politically incorrect for you to promote or express in any way strings, keep pot, whatever it may be, pistols, pistols <laughs> thank you, God bless you, anything that has to do with what you're passionate about. Unless you're passionate about stuff that we all happen to be passionate about. And you know what? I find as I get older and more and more hair leaves, I thought it was going to turn gray, but it's just leaving. As I get older, I find that what I'm passionate about is less and less and less of what most everybody else is passionate about, like his Torah and freedom and the ability to raise my children the way I want to raise them and to protect them from evil. That's what Hanukkah is about. And we should be pushing back. And we should be very, very good at expressing what we believe, why we believe, and doing it sometimes at the offense of others. You know, sooner or later, it's going to come down to the fact that you are the only one that will stand up, push back. And whether you're pulling a 9mm or you're pulling a sword and taking off the head of a priest, or a cop, whatever it may be. I really didn't mean to say that, so I'm not promoting that. And gee whiz, I'm going to have to get that out of there. Um, but if whatever it may be, if you're the last one, that's, that's what Mattathias was. He was the last one. He was the only one that would stand up and push back against the culture that was invading what they believed. I'm not saying raise up arms, not yet. <laughs> that time may come, but it's not now. <laughs> but we definitely need to stand up for what we believe, you know. So that's Hanukkah. I think it's important, and I think we should recognize it. And whether you're giving gifts or not, I don't care. But if you don't have a Maccabee man on the mantle that you're moving around, something's wrong. You know what I'm saying? Okay. <laughs> Anything else? You got kids being born soon. He's up first, I think. And then uh, Jenny is due March 3rd. Not that we're March 3 3. There it is. And we're having a shower for Jenny in January. Okay, having a shower for Jenny. I, I understand they had a shower for uh, Rebecca, and she thought she was coming to just a ladies' meeting and was flabbergasted. Almost had the baby right there. So, you know, if you want to see that happen with Jenny, maybe you know, swing by. And if anyone needs brisk contacts or brisk contacts. ideas in that regard, we've got a spreadsheet. Oh, there it is. Good, good, good. And speed dial, you know. That's great. That is great. That's all you need. That's <laughs> we have YouTube links. That's, that's right. Yeah. Pause, snip, pause, snip. Yeah, okay. All right. So we try to learn from every single portion every week as we go through it every year. And we are coming right to the end now of Brashid. And this has got a I think Karen would agree, the name of a really, really great guy, you know. So you should focus on this one as uh, Joshua leads us through discussion on, you know, faking out the brothers, leading them to repentance and so forth. This is, this is good stuff. And, and quite frankly, it's the foundation for the rest of what's going to come 
a people that have been chosen by God to which we have joined ourselves. So let's, let's learn that. You ready? Yes. Let's do it. I'm going to start off with an apology and say that we are not going to finish on time today because it is already almost time for us to end. So um, some of you will just have to deal with that. But we'll try not to go too late. Um, this week's portion is Miketz. And um, there, there are three themes in this portion that show up uh, quite a bit, kind of, I would say, overarching themes. In my opinion, they are redemption, Messiah, and Hanukkah. And of course, all three of these are related. Um, but uh, this portion, it's, it, it's interesting. I, um, I like to look at, uh, every now and again at the commentary on Chabad's website. They have a lot of good... They basically collate all of the different commentaries from different people and kind of organize them by the parasha. And they point out that Hanukkah always falls around Parashat Miketz. It's either right before or right after or right in the middle like this one. And, um, and I think that it's appropriate that that would be the case. Because Hanukkah, in addition to being about standing up for what's right, is also about the idea of light and darkness, which carries with it two pictures. One, of course, is that you are the light and the darkness. But the other side of that is that there is darkness in this world. And yet, at the same time, God brings light into the darkness. Um, one of the coolest traditions I've heard about Hanukkah came from um, a lesson that was taught actually by Peter at his uh, wedding um, when he was doing the little drosh for the men. And I, I can't recall where he drew it from. But the idea was that one version of where Hanukkah started, of course, we know the real story of Maccabees and all that stuff. But um, one theory about how old Hanukkah could be is that it dates back to Adam, as in the first man, Adam. And the reason it's the time of year is because in, the, in, the, in December, as we get towards the end of, of, the, uh, of the year, the sun is only out for so long, and it continues to get darker and darker, more and more darkness. And Adam got concerned, this being the first man, this was the first winter, he didn't know if it was going to continue this way until there was no more sun. And so uh, right around this time, of course, with the, um, the solstice, whatever else, and it starts to kind of come up the other way, and now the days get longer again, Hanukkah was an expression of gladness that God is faithful and he is redemptive and he's, and he's merciful because Adam's concern was that his sin had broken it. I messed up and the world is broken. And now it's just going to get getting darker and darker and darker until we all die and everything's over. But what Hanukkah teaches us is in the midst of darkness, there is light. And um, uh, the Lubavitcher Rebbe has a teaching, uh, that, uh, uh, not Lubavitcher, excuse me, Rebbe Nachman, um, and Likutei Maharan is this idea that like we light the candles uh, intentionally, not as Havdalah, where they're all bound together, but they're separated by spaces of darkness. Oh, because nice. in the midst of the darkness, we have the light. And the idea here is that um, the Midrash teaches, and start, this passage starts, it's happened at the end. Um, the it happened language carries with it intentionality. It kind of carries with it time frame, time markers. Like, this was on purpose. And so the Midrash quotes from a, book, a passage from Job that says that God sets an end to darkness. And the idea there is that Joseph is experiencing darkness in his life. He's gone through slavery. Now he's gone into prison. And it's been a very long prison sentence. And he had, we had just left Joseph where he had hoped that the uh, chamberlain of the wine, the wine steward, was going to come to his aid and intervene on his behalf, and he forgets Joseph. And yet, what we have here at the very beginning is it happened at the end of two years to the day. 
to recognize that language, it sounds a lot like the language when we talked about the Exodus. And it happened at the end of the 400 years, whatever, to the day, because God remembered Joseph, just like he remembered Noah, and just like he remembers us. I was talking to Juliana about this passage, and it's really neat, because Esther is all about God's sovereignty in global events. And he uses individuals to carry out those global events, but the focus is definitely big picture. Joseph is the same sovereignty of God at a big picture level, because he's about saving the, the, the Jewish people. It's a big deal. And yet it is also condensed down to the individual level. Because God's sovereignty isn't just about the big picture. It's about you personally. And this is the lesson we learn from Joseph and the lesson we learn from Hanukkah. That in the midst of darkness, in the midst when there is problems and you feel depressed and you feel like Adam, like it's just going to keep getting darker and darker and it will never, never turn around. We are reminded from this parasha that God is the one who's in charge. And God has that plan in place and it happens to the day exactly the way that he wants it to. So we're into Miketz, we're into the, the, the dreams. And it's interesting, in the middle of the portion, they pull Joseph out, Joseph comes to Pharaoh, and we have the really odd comment from Joseph. Pharaoh says, um, I had all these dreams, this is what's happening, and he says, and I heard you can interpret them. And Joseph says, it's not me, but God will give an answer. What's funny about that is not that he deflects. I think most of us were raised really well. We're good at deflecting praise. But Joseph specifically promises Pharaoh that God will give him an answer. How did Joseph know that? How could Joseph have known definitely God's going to give Pharaoh an answer? Maybe he'd already heard the answer. We don't know. But I think the reason is because he knew God. And God is not the per type of uh, uh, being to give a message without us wanting us to understand it. God, I believe, the, re the whole idea behind the Bible is that God speaks to mankind, but he does it with purpose. He does it to teach us. He, ha he wants us to understand. Otherwise, there's no reason for him to communicate in the first place. Agnostics believe there's a God somewhere out there. He doesn't care about us. He accidentally tipped over some cosmic glass that created the universe, and now he's doing his own thing, and we're left to our own devices as well. And every now and again, he gets bored, and he stirs his finger in there, and then he moves on. That's not the God of the Bible. It's not the real God. The real God is intimately involved in our lives, in the details of our lives, over and over and over again. And that is why Joseph could speak with such confidence to Pharaoh to say, God will give an answer. God wouldn't have had you had this dream and brought me out of prison to interpret it and made such a big deal out of this unless he intended for you, Pharaoh, to know what he's saying. So he believes in God's purpose, and he believes in God's uh, intentionality towards his people, which, if you think about it, is an amazing expression of faith. Joseph has gone through hell in his life. Yeah. He has gone through some awful experience. He's been betrayed by his own family. He's been uh, subject as a slave. He's been uh, accused wrongfully of a crime. He intentionally tried not to commit. Then he's thrown in prison. Then he helps somebody who then forgets him immediately. If there was anybody who would say, that's it, I'm done. God must not really exist or he must not care about me. It would have been Joseph. But Joseph is the one who comes out of prison to Pharaoh and he sees God is still there. He still has the belief that God is acting with purpose. Amen. And this is very special. In fact, in the dream, he tells Pharaoh, you've heard this dream twice. What that means is God is about to do it. 
Now, what's funny about that, we read that and we go, oh, yeah, of course, twice. You know, that's one of those things we just, whenever you see the word twice in Hebrew, it's like emphasized, right? So it makes sense to us. What's funny about that is that Pharaoh's not the first person in this story to get two dreams in a row. Joseph is. Joseph had two dreams almost 14, well, now I guess uh, 13 years prior in a row about the same thing, that his brothers were going to bow down to him. That didn't happen very quickly. About to happen. But when Joseph speaks to Pharaoh, he is so convinced that God is in charge and that God doesn't change no matter the circumstances of his life, he is able to confidently say to Pharaoh, you got two dreams in a row? It means it's about to happen. His own life defies that principle. His own life says that's not the way that God works. But he believes it's true. He believes, even though he hasn't seen it yet, that in God's timing, it's about to happen. And that faith from Joseph is what ultimately carries him through and gets him to this place. By the way, as much fun as I'm having, I'm not delivering a sermon, so feel free to raise your hand and jump in. Um, yes, Sir Micah. Backing up. Um, in mine it says that in the morning, um, verse 8, it says that in the morning his mind was buzzing with agitation. So he sent messengers and called all the sorcerers of the tomb and all its sages. Pharaoh related his dreams to them, but no one interpreted them satisfactorily for Pharaoh. And in the commentary it says, the Midrash says, they said, the seven good cows are seven daughters that will be born to you. The seven ugly cows mean that you will bury seven daughters. Seven good years of grain are seven countries that you will conquer, and seven bad years of grain are seven countries, colonies that will grow against you. Right, so the magicians, of course, when they're interpreting back to Pharaoh, they, they can only really think about the situation from Pharaoh's perspective. Seven, seven good, seven bad, so obviously there's a contrast there. So they say it's seven daughters, but then after you have seven daughters, you're gonna, seven of them are going to die, which is a terrible thing to sell Pharaoh. And then he says you're going to have seven, you're going to conquer seven provinces, and then seven provinces are going to rebel against you. So the idea is they were sort of stuck in the same mindset. Joseph is, um, one of, and I haven't watched it yet, but I really, really want to. Um, Rabbi Foreman has an interesting point that Joseph gets the clue. He figures it out. It's not seven things. It's time, seven years. Um, one of the things that's really fascinating about this dream from Pharaoh is that I believe that based on the language in the dream, this dream was remarkably realistic. Because it's interesting, in the middle of the dream, it says that Pharaoh was dreaming, and behold, he was standing over the river. What's fascinating about that is it doesn't say that he dreamt that he was standing over the river. It says he was dreaming, and then behold, he was standing over the river. The language almost implies like he actually thought he was there. In fact, if you go down a little bit farther uh, below that, it says Pharaoh woke, and behold, same language as before, it was a dream. Almost like in the same way he was surprised to see things in the dream, he was surprised it was a dream. Later when he's retelling the story to Joseph, you'll notice that he doesn't say he wakes up from the second dream. He only says he wakes up from the first dream. As though the whole thing was so realistic, it's like it actually happened to him. So what's cool about this idea is that God was acting intentionally. When he gives Pharaoh this dream, it was like, I'm going to make sure you don't forget this one. Because I have a very special friend of mine that needs to come out of prison right now. In fact, the Midrash teaches that it says at the end of this time, Pharaoh was dreaming. It's in like kind of an odd tense, the way that it's phrased, was dreaming. So they teach that he actually had the same dream every night, but could never remember it. And then this day, after two years of the same dream, woke up, that's right, that's what that scary dream was that I had last night. 
And so again, that just reemphasizes that intentionality of God, that he's doing these things on purpose because he has a plan. Yes, sir? I, I was just going to say, to your point, several of the prophets have the same kind of situation where it's like they are there. You know, and Isaiah that we read today opens with that same type of thing. He's actually there. Actually there. Yeah. God wasn't going to let him miss that one. Okay, so as we continue to the portion, uh, first off, just a funny joke. This is just really hilarious. If you, if you listen to the we'll be the judge of that. Oh, it was really funny. And if you don't laugh, that's your fault. <laughs> the point is, in the dream that he has, Pharaoh sees a whole bunch of parot. He is parot. And he sees parot, which are cows. Which is really almost like God's just kind of like, teasing him throughout the whole dream. He keeps seeing like himself, but not... Anyway, also the, mid, uh, the, the sages teach that when he says that they're these inferior cows... Not like any I've ever seen in Egypt. He wants to clarify, these are not Egyptian cows. These were really bad cows. They must have come from some other part of Canaan or something. Those were bad cows. We don't have cows like that here. Um, but what's remarkable is that as Joseph comes up, he brings him out of prison. He interacts with him. Joseph gives this, uh, this presentation, and then everything is flipped around. But you'll see parallel language to what we've seen before. Pharaoh specifically tells Joseph, only in the throne will I outrank you. He's made him his number two. Now, where else have we seen Joseph be the number two? In Potiphar's house. He comes to Potiphar's house and specifically says, Potiphar entrusted everything to him except the food that he ate. According to tradition, is, is like a delicate way of saying he didn't let him have his wife. But the point is that Potiphar entrusted him with everything but one thing. Pharaoh now comes to Joseph and says, I will entrust you with everything but one thing. Only in the throne will I outrank you. He also clothes Joseph, in, in the tr and I think the cool imagery is it's reversed from what we'd seen before. What happens with Potiphar's wife? Joseph runs off and leaves his garment behind. Now he is coming out of prison. He is being clothed specifically for this role that parallels the role he had before. What Joseph has done is he has demonstrated faithfulness when he was in a difficult situation. And now God is rewarding him by restoring what he lost, the garment is an image of what he lost, at the same time, he, his faithfulness to Potiphar as a slave is now being rewarded to where he's in the same position but as viceroy of the whole country. So you see this idea that when you, um, when you talk about hard work, when you talk about putting in effort, this imagery is not, um, I think a lot of times people think, you know, oh, who's looking? Who's paying attention? Does it count? Does it matter? I don't really want to put in the effort unless I'm going to get something for it. And that's kind of the culture we live in. It's very much like a me culture and I want something back for what I put in. But God's culture is different. God's culture is that work is good by itself. He tells Adam, you're going to work in the field and it's going to grow thorns. It's not always going to work, but the work is good and you're supposed to do it. And that's what Joseph does. Joseph shows himself to be faithful. Did I just totally see your comment? No, no. Oh, good. Joseph, Joseph is faithful when things are difficult, and God rewards him by giving him an opportunity to then repeat that faithfulness in another life, like Yeshua talks about. What, you know, you were faithful in small things, now I'll give you interest with much. Yes, ma'am. I was just going to say it wasn't the first time that he was, like, clothed, because his father also dressed him in a Right. Maybe you could also Which say his... Um, Father put him in a position of responsibility as well. Sure. And so, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I know. It's really good. It's very good. It's like it's a repeat. Because basically, one of the things I think that we, we recognize in life is that we our lives tend to be, when I was in an English class, you read a book, 
that looked at life, it used an imagery of a, um, it was the imagery of like a, a spiral staircase. In that even though in life, you, you, you constantly are growing up, you're growing up, your life is changing, but sometimes it feels like you're repeating the same story, but in a different stage of life, um, as it kind of covers the same territory. Joseph has the same thing happen here. And because I believe that he showed himself to be so faithful before, but at the same time he also gets a chance to undo some of his mistakes. With the situation with his brothers, there's some things he does that maybe not so hot. He maybe, maybe, maybe not. Depends on which stage you're reading. The point is that, fair, that Joseph gets a chance to do over, but to do it better. And I think it's a really beautiful thing is you get this imagery that Joseph is both redeemed to have a second chance, so to speak, but at the same time, he did make something of the first chance. So he's not a loser who gets to, you know, to get reset. He's a good man who now gets an opportunity to do it even better. And I think that's really what God is mostly about. He wants to give us a chance to improve ourselves and not just rehash the past or have a second go at it. Ideally, we, we make the most of each step, and then each one gets better. Yes, sir? That's just such a perfect example of how we should behave in the workplace, too, with that high level of integrity where... Most of the time, the biggest worry about you know, getting off for Shabbat or something like that is like, well, what if they fire me? Well, yeah. what if they put you in prison? Because that's what happened to Joseph. He wasn't just yeah. getting fired. He was yeah. literally in prison. But yet, it, I mean, he went from running one house to the entire country's houses. And so it's just, it's just a reminder of, like, God is in charge of everything. Surely, if, if he's not going to leave you high and dry. You're going to be okay if something like that resulted from you standing up for yourself. Right, no, that's very true. Um, and but it is important to stay out of prison. <laughs> if you can help it, yes, it's very, don't very good. Don't worry orange jumps. <laughs> I don't look so good when I tell orange. Um, but you see that throughout this story, it's interesting. When you look at, as the story progresses, we go on a very interesting experience. Of course, Joseph teaches in a dream that the famine is going to be so bad that you will forget the good years. So this, what's fascinating is that we get the reverse in Joseph's life. Joseph, when he has his firstborn son, he names him Forget Forgotten because he's saying, I forgot the bad stuff. And then his second son is named Fruitful. See how it's inverted? The, in, the, in Egypt, you start with the good years, you end with the bad years, and the bad years are so bad you forget the good. But Joseph's life, you start with the bad, you forget the bad, and then you're fruitful. And that's really a picture of the righteous versus the wicked. The wicked get everything in this world. There's a reason why you look on the news and the people sometimes who are making the most money or are the most successful or the most beautiful, they don't seem to age, they have everything they could ever want, and they're oftentimes the ones who are on the news because they're doing something wrong. And you look at yourself and you think, there's no way this is just. How does that guy or woman get all of those good blessings in life in spite of the fact that not only do they not even recognize God, but they live a lifestyle that defies him constantly. How is this fair? But God's just. Live it up while you can. Well, that's part of it. But also, God is just, and he sees even the small good things that a wicked person does, he rewards them. Jewish teaching holds that they are rewarded in this world with as many good things as they can have, so that in the world to come, they can receive only punishment for their sin. Because that's the lifestyle they've led. They've led a live-it-now lifestyle... And as a result, that's all that they're going to get. The righteous, on the other hand, we see in Hebrews, and, other, and also in Jewish teaching, this idea that they're looking ahead. They're looking for a city that's not here yet. They believe that God is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him, and God does so. But in the meantime, sometimes they have to go through all of their punishment for their misdeeds now, because God is just. 
And we've got to learn from those mistakes, and we've got to work through them, and we've got to grow. And in the end, at the end of the story, the good will be so good, like Paul talks about. It will be something that we can't even... Forget the tribulations. The hope that we have is so great, it will make it as though it never happened. It doesn't matter. And that's what Joseph's life does here. So you get this inverted parallel. The wicked are over here, the righteous are here. A really interesting teaching from the Lubavitcher Rebbe, he looks at the dreams. Joseph and Pharaoh both have two sets of dreams. And Pharaoh's dream starts with him on the bank of a river. And Joseph's dream has him, in the first one, uh, in a shield, with sheaves of grain in a field. And the, the Lubavitcher Rebbe points out that the wicked live a life like on a stream. Life just kind of rolls by them. It just kind of keeps moving. They just stand there. They have no responsibilities. And life just kind of flows past them. It just sort of happens to them. And they're very relaxed. They're standing above the river. They kind of watch life pass by. The righteous, on the other hand, they're in the field. They're working really hard. They're putting in the effort. It's, it's a life of toil. Now, the Lubavitcher Rebbe goes on to say that the life of Pharaoh, standing by the riverbank, is very enticing. In fact, um, it's interesting that in the book of, of Deuteronomy, which we'll get to later at the end of the year, God contrasts the land of Canaan, where they're going, with Egypt, but he doesn't do it in a way you'd expect. Instead of saying, the land of Canaan is so wonderful, it's going to make Egypt look so pathetic, he actually inverts it and says, the land of Canaan where you're going is not like Egypt, where you could water things with your foot because the Nile is right there. The land of Canaan is going to depend on rain. In other words, it's not going to be automatic that you're going to receive those blessings. You're going to have to work for it. You're going to be worthy of God blessing the ground. And uh, as a result of that, what you see is that the life of the righteous is actually one of work, and the life of the wicked is one of ease, and it's confusing. But the Lubavitch already points out that it's only in a life of responsibility that you have the freedom to create. You have the freedom to change your world. If you just stand and you watch life go by and you relax and watch TV and do nothing, then you have given up all of your autonomy. You've given up your involvement in the universe. But we were made in God's image, and we are here on purpose to change the world that we live in. And that is why Joseph has this dream about working, and Pharaoh has a dream where he just watches it happen. And what happens in the end? Pharaoh is stuck. He doesn't know what to do. But Joseph is the one who has the idea that if we work hard enough now and take some of those blessings and invest for the future, which is really a picture of Joseph's whole life as a righteous man, then we'll reap that benefit when everybody else is starving. Yes, sir? I was just going to point out one you're saying is that when they were tired of the tribulations in the wilderness, they definitely remembered and right. wanted to go back. Right. You know, that was the place to go. That is the way that we sometimes feel. We have to remember why we're here. Um, so as we go through the, the portion, of course the famine hits, God uses this to bring the people of Israel to Egypt. Um, what's interesting is it says uh, the number of them is actually highlighted, which is odd. First off, let's point out that in the previous parasha, Judah is no longer with his brothers. So Judah has apparently left, gotten married, had kids, uh, had them married, had them die, had this wonky thing with his daughter-in-law, ended up with grandkids, sort of, and now he is back with his own family again. So he's, we've had a lifetime for Judah in the last 13 years or so, give or four, 20 years, I guess, and now he is back with the family. It highlights specifically that 10 of them go into Egypt. Well, the sages comment that um, this, uh, this events that take place with Egypt is tied to another story in which we have ten people. 
happen to be the ten spies. So what happens when ten Israelite sons end up in Egypt? What happens? But Joseph accuses them of being spies, which is, think about it, it's really kind of funny. He says, you're spies. And they go, we've never been spies, which is the funniest defense I've ever heard. Like, not, not, of course we're not spies. We're good guys. And it's like, we're never been spies before. No, we're CPAs. We're not spies. <laughs> it's, an odd, it's an odd defense. But it's interesting because it kind of ties in with that idea that it's connected to this, the sin of the spies. They're accused of being spies like we've never been spies. Not saying we won't be in the future, but like we haven't been spies in the past. And so Joseph's, this whole imagery is almost like this, this punishment for the ten spies. Um, later on, the... Um, in one of the, the commentaries on Chabad.org, they point out, uh, one of the commentaries says that the, uh, the, um, the reason why Isaac, or excuse me, Jacob does not take Reuben's offer is not because it's lame, although it is lame, but he takes Judah's offer because he's thinking, like, they, they, it, tradition holds that basically all the patriarchs were like hyper-prophets. Everything they said, everything that they did, basically they, were, they could see the future all the time. It's like, you... I know what your grandson. He's going to invent, you know, hydropower or whatever else, and we're going to all live in space. So I'm going to give you some extra money because you're special. You know, something to that effect. And that's what, that basically they're kind of living that way. So the tradition holds that Jacob recognizes that Reuben's children are going to be one of the ten spies. So he's thinking, if this is punishment for the ten spies, I don't want any of them. Judah, your son, your grandson or... Um, adopted grandson, depending on your tradition, Caleb is going to be one of the only guys who doesn't go along with the ten spies. I will follow with you. Yes, you want to take on Benjamin? You can do that. But Reuben, the history is not so good for you. Um, but the imagery here is if these ten guys, and they go down. Oh, thank you, sir. Wait, no, finish up. No, no, no. You, I, I'm, I was transitioning. Go. Well, the ten, that, the interesting thing is their response, the minute when they were declared that they called the spies, their response in verse 21, chapter 42, verse 21, they said to each other, it is true, we are guilty for our brother because we saw his distress when he begged us mm-hmm. and we didn't listen. That's why this trouble has come upon us. Mm-hmm. Right? So the, the interesting thing to me, and I hadn't thought about this until I was reading this year, and the interesting thing is that their, their response is correct. When something calamitous happens to us, we should be wondering, is this because of something that I've done? Mm-hmm. That's right. Not because God is trying to necessarily punish me immediately for something that I do that's incorrect, but more importantly, so that I will that I'll repent. Right. So they ask. They're asking the question: What do we need to repent for? This is twenty years later, and this is the thing they remember they need to repent for. Right. Which kind of indicates, with it, with the exception of Judah's little little uh, interlude there. Uh, Earlier in like two, two, uh, three weeks ago, we kind of, we kind of, or two weeks ago, we kind of like. This is the only thing they've done wrong in the last twenty years. I mean, it was twenty years ago that they're repenting. It's like it's almost an implication that they'd actually, maybe they've been living kind of a life of repentance since then. Mm. Yeah, we've seen this story with Joseph, the Judah, that he obviously had kind of made that connection, and we see him kind of turning the corner previously. Yes, sir. Well, to pick up on that. You have Judah who plays a key role in in what they did to Yosef, right? Mm-hmm. And then the deception that they play on Yaakov when they take the garment, dip right. the blood, and, and they go back and you know lie and say he was you know he was killed by a beast or whatever, right? And that nearly breaks the heart 
Well, it does. It breaks the heart of Jacob, right? Because at that point, Jacob thinks his son is dead. Mm -hmm. And Judah was really the mastermind behind that whole thing. Right. And yet, we then have this interlude of Judah and what happens to his sons. Right. They die. Yeah. So there's this, you know... Measure for measure. He's learned measure, his measure, lesson. Measure, measure for measure because you played, you played uh, with the life of the son of your father. Right. And now that your son's lives are going to be going to be dealt with. Right. And I want that imagery shows up throughout this portion. So I hope that we're going to highlight a few of them. But be looking for more. That measure for measure concept. God is a just God. He does. He rewards people for what they do. Also important, did I cut you off? Was that it? No. Okay. Also important is, let's start introducing some of the messianic implications here. Joseph's story is a a real story. It's exactly what happened. It was necessary to get them into Egypt Egypt and all that stuff. But Joseph's story is probably one of the clearest allegories of Messiah that you're ever going to read in the Torah. In fact, sometimes, if you you start reading the apostolic writings um, very clearly... It's uh, and start kind of tying in phrases and pieces. Some of the allegories don't even really match, but it reminds you so much of the story of traditions around the story that it's like that's got to be on purpose. Like surely that you know the Holy Spirit led the guy, the, 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 the apostle, to write that comment because it reminds us of Joseph, which is really fascinating because Joseph's entire story is the brother who was thrown out, who then is recognized um, as the king of the Gentiles and now is welcoming his brothers back in. So you have this, uh, this imagery of betrayal within the group, but also forgiveness. What's fascinating about this particular portion here, as we read, they say, did you not see his anguish? Notice that they don't convict themselves about selling him into slavery, which is odd. Tradition holds that the, the brothers believed they were doing what was right. They thought that Joseph was a threat to the unity of the group because he thought he was supposed to be in charge of them all. So in their minds, they were doing themselves a righteous deed by getting rid of him. Kind of like the way they treated Messiah, thinking it was a good thing to get him out of the way. But also, in this case, what do we see that they convict themselves for? Not the act, but the way they did it. In other words, maybe they could still look back on their, their past experience and say, you know what, give me knowing what I, know, what I knew then, I would have done the same thing again, but I would have done it a different way. What is the sin that has led to our current exile. It's the sin of baseless hatred. It's the sin of not doing the wrong thing, but doing it the wrong way. It's the sin of not showing compassion, of not showing mercy. It's the sin that Yeshua spends almost his entire ministry preaching against over and over and over again. His imagery, his parables, the times when he most disagrees with the Pharisees is usually not because he's disagreeing with what they're doing, but the way they're doing it, the way they're teaching it, how they're, they're chastising and criticizing and condemning the, their brothers around them for standards that may or may not be part of the Torah and aren't necessarily bad, but they're, they're, they're treating the people poorly. And it's almost like it's irrelevant what you do. If you act like that to your brothers, that's what happens here. So that's what the brothers here are doing as well. They're looking at their own past and saying, the way that we treated Joseph, not what we did, the way we did it, that is where we erred, and that is why we are being punished today. It's a lesson we should be learning, because that's what this exile is all about. Yes, sir? So the, so the, the uh, Messiah Yeshua's disciples um, obviously are, the, are like the, 
They're the ones that pin all this down. Yet in the apostolic scriptures, we find no, no correlation between Joseph and Messiah. Yeah. Unless when we read it, it's like, why? That I mean, how can nobody see this? It's so obvious. And the difference is because when they wrote it, it hadn't happened that way yet. Mm. We have the advantage of looking back That's true. upon the basically this split between Gentile and Jew in the second century. We can look at that and go, oh, well, that's exactly what happened. That's the story of Joseph. When they were writing it, they did not see that because it hadn't happened yet. They saw the opposite happen. And when the, when the men were following Yeshua around and asking, questioning him, we have oftentimes read that as a, who do they think they are? They have a right to question him. And in fact, what they're doing is, as you, as you pointed out, they're doing the right thing. They're following Deuteronomy 13. It says, when someone comes to you and says, this is the way that God's spoken to me and this is what we should do, you should test them. And so they were testing him, correctly testing him. The, 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 the culmination of it all is not being fully borne out in the apostolic scriptures, at least up until, uh, up until the book of Jude. So when we read it, we have the advantage of looking back historically and saying, we we see that they started to do the right thing, they did the wrong thing. Well, it was the wrong thing, but it was most certainly for the wrong reason as right. well. Baseless hatred. And the result was, we have a separation where Messiah is pushed out into the world among Gentiles. He can't be the Messiah if he's among Gentiles. You know? And, and what we see is that exact same thing. It, it, the impossibility of Joseph being the ruler of Gentiles. That's impossible. And yet God did it to redeem Gentiles. Gen well, Gentiles, of course. The whole world was saved through Joseph's actions, but also the Jewish people. Right. It's that double pen. Yes. I, I, think, I do see a connection with uh, Joseph because in the, uh, um, in the father, writing of the fathers, it does say there will be a Messiah, Ben Yosef. Mm -hmm. and, and actually... But see, all of that prostates... Wait a second. Ashua's father was Yosef. Right. <laughs> so I see, I do see, but the other thing I see is that it's just like Cain and Abel. Cain was the one that did what was right, and he's the one that suffered. Joseph is the one that did what's right, and he suffered. And Yeshua did what was right, and he suffered. And it was always by the brothers. Yeah, and it's interesting that in this particular story, you notice that you read the portion today, Pilate figures it out. He, he figures out that the only reason why they're condemning Yeshua is because of jealousy. Is like the base motive. Regardless of what they were saying, the reason was that was what it looked like to the Gentiles. That's really what we see as well in the story of Joseph. It looks like jealousy. Maybe it's been couched, you know, maybe they were thinking of it differently. To their credit, we assume that they were. But from our perspective, on the outside, that's what it looks like. Um, did you have more, or is that okay? So we move on to the next section. And think about. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, sir. Um, but also um, the the saying with Yeshua, where he says that. Uh, a, a prophet is not honored in his own home. Mm -hmm. Where you see amongst Pharaoh, Pharaoh immediately says, oh, right. "This guy's filled with God, filled <laughs> by God." Right. right. But his brothers were like, "Oh, you got another dream, Joseph." Yeah. You know? And they're ready to throw That's him a in good the pit, point. you know, cast him out. But Pharaoh immediately realizes he's 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 filled with God. Even even the time like we were talking about the the baker and uh, the cupbearer not recognizing at the time they didn't want to hear what Joseph had to say either but when Pharaoh when he answered the question for Pharaoh he was like boom who who who's filled with God like this guy right you're going to be viceroy as a matter of fact 
only my throne is <laughs> is what separates me from you. Right. You know, and he recognized him right off the bat that he was filled with the with the spirit of the most. That's high. a really good point. That's a really good point. Also, another another parallel. This is actually really cool. I, I stumbled across this in the commentary through from Midrash Rabbah from Tanhuma. That is really weird teaching about this uh, area where they imprison Shimon. And this is where I get back to the idea that when the apostles are writing the story of Yeshua, I think sometimes there were things playing in the back of their mind that sometimes don't even line up. The allegories, the imagery doesn't always line up evenly, but the imagery is carried through. So in the story from Midrash Rabbah, they say that when Joseph is going to imprison Shimon, hey, remember Shimon, the, the, Shimon and Levi basically take out an entire city by themselves. They were very unhappy people that they killed. But the point is, um, they are those two guys are pretty impressive. They're like they're they're kind of like you know Captain America kind of people, right? So they're going to imprison Shimon. Yeah, and Joseph Joseph goes and he tell according to tradition he goes to Pharaoh and he says, "I need seventy men to imprison Shimon because Shimon is a, he's a, he's a dude, right? Really big dude." And, uh, and this is a really odd teaching. As they approached him, Shimon cried out aloud at them. On hearing his voice, they fell on their faces and their teeth were broken. Uh-huh. Which sounds very similar to the Garden of Gethsemane story, or the account, where the, the army of Roman soldiers, whatever else is the book of John, they come to capture Yeshua, and Yeshua says, who are you looking for? And they're like, are you uh, the, the guy who claims to be the Messiah? And he goes, I am. And they all go, and they all kind of stand up again, kind of like, wait, uh, remind us, are you the guy? I am. Okay, all right, all right. I'll go with you. You're okay. the guy. That's it. It's over. So the point is, uh, in the teaching, actually, Joseph then goes and tells Menashe, hey, you go take care of Shimon. And he, he, he does it by himself. And Shimon's like, that guy must be family. There's no way anybody touches me and takes me out unless they're family. So the point that I'm trying to get at is... You get this imagery, these parallels, these, these, these ideas, these accounts, and you're going to see more as we continue to read through the portion that tie in Yeshua, tie in Messiah into the story with, uh, with Joseph. Now, as, as they leave, they leave Shimon behind, um, and they come back home. I find it fascinating to me, we're at Canaan in, in Egypt, and they stop at an inn, from like the same inn that Moshe stopped in, you know, like... 200 something years later it's like this is a very popular inn don't bring your money here apparently there's something about leaving things behind at this inn so be careful with that four circumcessions very big place (laughs) right um but uh they come back and um reuben makes this this very odd offer if i don't bring back uh benjamin because they he's told me bring benjamin if i don't bring back benjamin then you can kill my sons which really I'm sure those of you who are grandparents in the room, that's a great trade-off. I will, I will kill my grandkids because you didn't bring my son back. I don't think that's really okay. Um, uh, uh, but the point is that, uh, of course, he just gets thrown out immediately because that's not the responsibility that, that Israel is looking for. What Judah does here in the next chapter, Judah comes back and Judah flips it around. Remember now, in the past, what's been the problem with Judah? Not that he does the wrong thing, but he does it the wrong way. Judah's intention, I believe, when he tells them to sell Joseph, is not that he's trying to get rid of Joseph. He recognizes that Shimon and Levi are violent dudes. There's ten men here, or he doesn't know where Reuben stands really, but there's basically nine other guys who are out there that want to kill Joseph. 
he knows there's one person he can't win, but he's kind of a leader, so he recommends selling him into slavery as a way to save Joseph. The intention, I think, was to get him out of harm's way. Let's yeah. get him as far away as possible. He's out of the way, so they'll accept this, but we won't kill him because that would be wrong. The problem is that Judah doesn't accept responsibility for it. Judah's the one who comes up with the idea, let's lie to dad, tell him his son is dead, and, it's, and that will, you know, it will all escape responsibility, and we'll get rid of Joseph. And as you pointed out, Judah gets that turnaround on him. Later, when he has a situation with Tamar, Tamar says, you know, look at these items that some guy gave me, tell me if they're yours, and it's the same language we see with, with, uh, with them presenting to his father, Jacob. Judah then steps up. At the risk of ins incredibly awful embarrassment and shame, he, ad he admits Tamar is correct. She's more righteous than I. Those are my things. Then, here, Judah has learned this lesson. He, he comes to Jacob. He doesn't come to him and say, hey, look, I'll take responsibility for him. You can have my, you know, my donkeys or my gold or my kids or whatever. He says, I will bear the blame. Put it all on me. Which is really powerful because the, 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 the guarantee that Reuben offered is a guarantee he has no control over. If Benjamin dies in the way, Reuben may or may not be able to prevent that. It's a worthless promise to say, you can kill my kids because it's not up to Reuben. What Judas says is, I will take the responsibility. I will be the one to blame if something happens out of my control. And the beauty of that is that is the way that God wants us to live by taking responsibility for our lives. To say, may or may not happen the way you want it to. It may or may not be out of your control, but it's your responsibility. In other words, it's like um, some of you in this room own your own business, work as managers, and that kind of thing. And you know when you have an employee that things sometimes happen outside of that employee or that underling's control. It was an accident, an act of God, you know, whatever it might be, but when that happens, it doesn't matter whose fault it is. It matters what we're going to do about it. As business owners, we rarely use the act of God. Right. Hopefully. Excuse. Yes, exactly. It's an excuse. And that's the point. Judah says, no excuses. Whatever happens, it's on me. I will be the guarantor for Benjamin. That responsibility is what allows him to be the leader that ultimately gives birth to the kings of Israel and the Messiah, as, as we would later see. Um, what's also cool here is that Jacob actually does kind of a weird, like, ambib uh, ambiguous comment. He says in, we're in chapter 43, trying to keep it moving. He says that, take, uh, take all this different stuff, take your brother, rise, return to the man, may El Shaddai grant you mercy, since verse 14. Grant you mercy before the man that he may release to you your other brother as well as Benjamin. What's funny is he doesn't identify the other brother by name. If you think about it logically, he should have said, and he, he released to you Shimon as well as Benjamin. But he doesn't do that. He says your other brother. I think somewhat kind of prophetically, although not necessarily on purpose, he's kind of thinking of Joseph. What he's really thinking of is go get your other brother. In other words, there's something else going on here. So he go, they go back, not just to, receive, to re, uh, return Shimon, but to get the other brother that they'd sent years before. Also cool, he doesn't ever refer to Joseph uh, as the viceroy. They call him the man. He also calls him the man. Sticking it to the man, you know. But what's funny is the man is an odd, is an odd phrase throughout this portion. I mean, it shows up over and over and over again, the man, the man, the man. 
which is kind of cool because I'm thinking about from today's reading from the Flame Foundation, what does Pilate say? Behold, the man! There's again this imagery, this idea, this picture. There's Messiah. He's the man. Not just a man. He is the man. And in this particular account, Joseph is the man that they ultimately have are responsible to go back to. Yes, ma'am? Going back just a tiny bit to um, Judah's statement where he's talking about being responsible. I've kind of seen that throughout here. That even though when the brothers looked and said, think of the anguish that we saw, I think Judah has remembered the anguish he has felt watching his father suffer mm-hmm. all these years. Mm-hmm. And so Judah had borne the responsibility for his father, for the deceit to his father and the hurt that his father has taken mm-hmm. on. So I think here he's acknowledging we have taken that blame on for what we've done. And he's just verbalizing here, I'm taking on the right. same thing we have. Yeah, good point. There was a, one of the, I think it's the Midrash that wondered why they were called Joseph's brothers instead of Jacob's children. Right. And the answer is because, like, Every day since then, they were repentant and were praying that Joseph was okay. And there was like, so it was kind of like a tikkun. Right. In fact, tradition holds that when they go back to Egypt, part of their they, they get caught in sort of a bad part of town. And the reason they're there is because they're looking for Joseph. That they realize this was a really big mistake, and they're really trying to fix it. So Joseph, when he's when he's testing them, it's not like the light bulb goes off for these guys. As you pointed out, Dad, for the last 20 years, they've been repentant. They realize they've made mistakes, and they are trying their best to fix them. But unfortunately, they've kind of broken the vase and putting the pieces back together is really hard. Um, to their surprise, it gets done for them. Mm-hmm. But um, think about this imagery. Think about gener- uh, one of the things Rabbi Foreman teaches in these portions is you see these generational mistakes, generational errors, and deceit is a big one of them. We see it with Jacob. Then we see it with Jacob's kids to, to Shechem. We see it with Jacob's kids back to Jacob. We see it with like Judah's daughter-in-law back to Judah. You see all of this deceit as it, pair, it, it just cascades to the next generation. Um, so here, what's interesting is that the, the brothers come back and they bring back the money. Now, obviously, the money was given to them. Who knows whether or not anybody recognized it, lost it, whatever. They intentionally bring it back to say, hey... We're, we're owning up to this. We had it, and we're going to try to be honest and upfront about it. What's fascinating is that the, the, the man, in this case, tradition holds its, um, I think it's Ephraim or Manasseh, one of the sons of Joseph. He then tells them, don't worry about it. The God, your God, the God of your fathers, weird language coming from an Egyptian, Egyptian, has blessed you. What's cool about that is if you think about it, that is almost the exact same language that a long time prior, Jacob uses. Because Isaac says, when he's tricking Isaac to get the blessing, how did you get the food so fast? What happened there? And Jacob lies, essentially, or deceives. He doesn't explicitly lie. He deceives by saying, God, Hashem has blessed me. This idea of like the blessing from God when it was unexpected. But now we get the similar language, but what's happening? The brothers are undoing that trend. I mean, we see up until now all of this deceit, and now they're finally trying to be open. They're finally trying to learn from that mistake. Um, interestingly enough, talk about measure for measure. In the previous portion, it says that Joseph had, or the previous chapter, Joseph had imprisoned them for three days, all the brothers. 
The Midrash points out that's how much time they deliberated about attacking Shem. Because it specifically says on the third day they invade Shem to wipe out all the people there. So it's a measure for measure. In the same way you spent three days planning this attack, now you're going to spend three days in prison to think about what you've done. Which is kind of a cool, a cool picture. Um, so he, he, he gets the men. This, to me, is one of my favorite parts of this par- parasha. He gets the men, brings them in, and they have a meal. And then he arranges them by, by order, birth order, which is really cool. But while they're eating, this is the weirdest. I, you read it, you kind of stick out to you. It says they had wine with him, and they got were intoxicated. And you're like, what? Like, A, why are we talking about this? And B, like, I'm so confused. Like, why is that important? I mean, every word in the Torah is there for a reason. So why would they highlight they drank wine? Like, who cares? So they had drank wine, they ate, bo- uh, they ate, they ate beef, Wellington, whatever. I mean, it's like, what, what is, what's going on here? Why do we need to know what, what vintage it was? I mean, like, what's the importance of knowing they had wine? And the sages in the, in, 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 uh, in the Talmud actually have a drash on this. And this is such a cool picture of Messiah. It just blew me away. But they, they say this was the first time that the brothers and, and Joseph had had wine since they had departed from each other 20 years earlier. What does that remind you of? Messiah, as he's getting ready to leave in the last Seder, he tells his disciples, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until I have it with you in the kingdom. What are they doing? They are in Joseph's house, where Joseph is the viceroy of the kingdom, drinking wine together. I just thought that imagery was so cool to see that picture of in the same way that they had waited until there was a time of some level of rejoicing. The, the, uh, the, the Talmud, I think, it also references that the brothers were okay with drinking wine because while they didn't know that was Joseph, they recognized that they were no longer um, envious of their brothers because when Benjamin receives the extra portion, they're okay with that. So they were rejoicing in that they had repented. Joseph, of course, has reason to rejoice. He has all his brothers in the same room. In the same way, in the future, Messiah comes to us. He will be rejoicing because he has all of his, uh, all of his children with him again. And at the same time, we will be rejoicing because we will realize that we have finally really repented. And we are with Messiah once again. Amen. Behind God. Yes. Okay, just, just a thought. I, it's maybe a bit of a stretch. But one thing that, I, that popped out to me was... And Pharaoh said to Joseph, and he put him in charge, and he gave him a ring from his hand, and he put on, um, you know, fine garments, dressed him in fine linen, and placed the gold chain upon his neck. Then he gave him a full ride. He gave him mm-hmm. his chariot. And curl. I was thinking of the, the prodigal son. Yeah, it's a good movie there. He, you know, the father looked for him, because this, you know, thinking of Yeshua coming back, you know, or... Joseph being a picture of the Messiah and then them coming before him that second time. But when the prodigal son came back, they gave him a ring and they gave yeah. him the, the garment and they gave him um, shoes. Well, I think he was an upgrade. Joseph had the upgrade and, you know, yeah. no, you know no more footmobile. Yeah, exactly. He had the, the real ride. But the, the brother of the prodigal son was angry. Mm. Right. But, but later, you know, and there was the fatted calf, and there was the meal, and there was all this merriment. But at the end of the story, his brother was told it's good to, you know, come. Your, what was dead is now, you know, what was lost is found, what was dead is now 
now alive, and it is good to, to drink and be merry with your brother. Mm. Right. In fact, yeah, it's a really interesting point. It is almost like it's a weird parallel, but Joseph is the good guy. Yeah. His story does kind of look like the bad guy in that prodigal son account, because actually, when like I said, one of the points they make is that the, the brothers are looking for Joseph in, in a bad area of town, which is exactly where the prodigal son was. That was the complaint from the good son. Mm-hmm. Hey, he got your inheritance and went and spent it on you know riotous living, and now he's back and you're treating him like he's one of us? And he, what does the father say? You've always been with me. You got the blessing of being with me. He's the one who's been exiled, but now he's home. And we get that picture here, too. The brothers have been with the dad. Now they're going to re- re- reunite the whole family. There's definitely this kind of energy. That's what I'm saying. I think the story of Joseph plays a very important role in the life of Messiah. And not all the pictures line up, so it's not supposed to be like a one-to-one. But be careful as we try to make predictions or whatever else based off the story of Joseph. But I think that it's kind of playing in the back of the mind. Because the imagery there is is so evident. He, he is a messianic character. In fact, he, I mean, tradition holds that. He is a messianic character. Because I'll say that Yosef is at some deeper level than Messiah than Yosef. Right. So the stu- when you study what happened to him, it's somehow always connected to Messiah. Which is really cool. Right. It's almost like God snuck in like this code. You know, We're going to read it every year. Think about Messiah. When we finally see Messiah, it's like... Yeah. I've seen this movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When he speaks Hebrew. Go ahead. Um, I was thinking about your circular stairway. All right. Yeah, yeah. And um, and actually, I think I think it's so true um, that you look uh, at, at this story in a big picture. Um, and I I feel like this story has there's it's, there's so much deceit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, there it's is. really Jacob. I mean, you know, actually, his his name, you know, so it, in our culture, people say his name means like deceiver or something, like mm-hmm. which it doesn't really. But he really is a liar. <laughs> and but the thing is, it's like I, I, it makes it reminds me of like spiritual genetics because right. like you see Abraham tell a lie. He tells somebody that his wife is his sister, but it's it's like a little white lie because and he, he even justifies it. Well, really a lie. Well, he, she kind of is my sister. He he justifies it later. So it's almost like it wasn't really a lie, but it kind of was. But then his son tells the same lie, and it's not really true. <laughs> Definitely not his sister. They are related, but it's not his sister. And then you see Jacob, he doesn't tell that lie, but he lies to his father. And it is an outright lie. He lies to his father to get the blessing. I'm my brother. Says he's his brother. Then it's like in some kind of like karmic way, his uncle lies to him and gives him the other, the other sister. So right. it's kind of like, well, you could say that was a decoder, now balanced. it's all good. It's not true, though. Not true. Because later yeah. in his life, it's almost like it comes full circle, and Jacob is lied to about his own son. Mm-hmm. His sons lie to him about his other son, which is exactly what he did to his father. It's really sad. Yeah. Um, heartbreaking to him. His father doesn't seem so heartbroken, so that's good. But again, lies. Isaac was stronger. All ten of those sons lied to him. That's like, it's like the spiritual genetics here, they spread all over the place, and then um, Judah kind of gets lied to by his daughter-in-law, and there's a whole mess out of that. And then Joseph, you know, is kind of like deceiving his brothers, and right. there you go. Um, but interesting, another thing that, that stood out to me as, as like a circular, kind of comes full circle, was the um, finding the cup in Benjamin's sack. Mm-hmm. Because the brothers use almost exactly the same language that Jacob uses when he's talking to Laban. Laban comes running after him right. and says, why do you take my gun? He's like, hey, whoever has it, they can be killed. 
Right. With very rash. Let's never say that But and Laban, it's, and it's interesting how the story doesn't quite turn out because Laban doesn't find it, even though Rachel did take it. Right. In this story, Benjamin didn't take it, but they find it anyway. They do. Which is very interesting. It's like a, it's a full circle. Yeah. Story. In fact, the picture, the rabbi, the the, te- the sages comment on that point, and they say, because Benjamin is the is the son of Rachel. I, oddly enough, he wasn't even born when Rachel does this, but the parallel is so vivid. <laughs> Thankfully, Joseph, also a son of Rachel, his son, tradition holds, is the one who catches them, Manasseh. He sends him out to go get them. And he has learned the story, so when they say, whoever has it's going to die, he goes, no, 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 no that's not going to happen. They're going to be a slave. They're not dying. Not dying! We saw that movie. Stop it. So that's exactly what happens to Rachel. Rachel say, hey, Jacob says, whoever has it will die, and then tradition holds, that's why she dies young. Because he said that anyway, so they're like not dying, not not dying, um, but <laughs> but yeah, you're right. And actually, the the, the, the midrash is really funny. They're like they all look at Benjamin, you're just like your mother, and he reports back to them. Do we see sheep here? Who lied to their father? You know, so. <laughs> you're right. Um, so jumping to the end, kind of the end of the portion where you know they, you know, you know Seth kind of sets up this little um, scheme, right, with the whole cup and all that. And so they find the cup, they bring them back, and, you know, they take them before Yosef, and of course now his brothers, you know, are really, you know, they're like, oh my gosh, what's God doing to us? And, you know, and they're just really distraught. But when they get before Yosef, um, you know, Yehuda steps up and he and he takes the lead, right? And he Hallelujah. and he gave he engages in this conversation. And Yehuda said, "What shall we say to my master? How shall we speak? And how shall we be exonerated?" Uh, and and he you know he goes on and, and on and uh, uh, and at the end, basically, when Yosef says, uh, "Well, there's a couple things that, that are interesting." It's several times. Throughout the portion, um, Yosef always asks, "Is your father alive?" Mm-hmm. Yes, he's he's alive. He's you know he's he's doing good. Thank you very much. And then like a, a chapter two later, "Is your father alive?" Yes, yes, he's he's good. Thank Why you very much. Why does he keep asking about? He keeps asking about the and, and so. But at the end of at the end of this portion, right where they're now standing, you know, terrified before Yosef, and then Yosef says. I'm keeping him. He's going to be my slave. The rest of you can go. And that's how the portion ends. And the next portion, next week's portion, by gosh, next time in the bar shop, it starts out and it's and it starts out and it says, uh, "I've got it. I just have to touch on the first couple verses of the next week's portion when I'm reading because it's just amazing." Uh, so, Vayagash means, and he drew near, meaning as soon as Yosef uh, said, no, no, he's going to be my slave, he's staying here, Benjamin is staying here, the rest of you go in peace to your father. And immediately, Yehuda s- steps up and Literally. draws near yeah. to Yosef. And the and, word there is not, he responded. It doesn't say, and, jo- and Judah said, it says specifically, Vayagash is this idea of meeting. Right. It's like almost like a meeting of the minds. It's like he got 
into a one-on-one -on -one in the midst of the room with Dozen. Sidebar. Yeah. Well, and, and there's all kinds of midrashim on that. Like, like he drew near to actually uh, perhaps fight, physically fight him to save Benjamin. He drew near to beg and plead to save Benjamin. He drew near to, uh, you know, he, there's all these different ideas that the Midrashim brings out. But the point is, he's living up to the promise that he made to, the, to his father. And he says, please, my master, let your servant now speak a word. And he pleads. And the first, in the first, you know, I don't know, probably 20 verses of Parsha Vayagash, as after he draws near, it's Judah recounting all these things things, you know, that have happened and, if, if, you know, if you do this, our, our father's going to die and, and, you know, and he goes on and on he's begging and pleading and at this point um, he, you know, and then he ends this kind of discussion with, so let Benjamin go with his brothers and I'll stay. Right, so at that point, now Yosef knows that Judah has repented. It's clear. He's had a change of heart. And then that's when we have this, the famous, you know, event where Yosef says he can't, you know, he can't take it now. So now he's like, I've got to reveal myself. Everybody out of the room. And then he lets out this, you know, such a loud cry that, you know, the entire household of Pharaoh heard it. And if you put yourself in the story, imagine... The brothers, they're all standing there. They're terrified because this guy has the power to do whatever he wants to them. And now he's dismissed everybody except for them, and he drops to his knees and starts bawling like a baby, right? And can you imagine they're kind of like, are uh, all going to die. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, and, did I do that? You know, and then when he, when he stands up, right, he, uh, he makes the, the famous statement, Ani Yosef, but he follows up that statement, Ani Yosef, with, is my father still alive? Ani Yosef, is my father still alive? Okay, wait a minute, hold on. How many times have you asked us <laughs> over the course of the last, you know, days and weeks as we've interacted and of course we as your brothers had no idea who you were but how many times have you asked us about our father and how many times have we told you our father is alive and yet at the very moment that he's now revealing his identity as their brother Yosef the very first thing he says is is my father alive in the Hebrew it is ha'od avichai is my father alive? Why is that? Why is that the first question that he asked? And there's some there's a really interesting um, midrash about this because um, in this particular midrash, Yosef is you know he's the key is he is um, you know this man of great power and authority. He's kind of he's not Pharaoh, but he's kind of like the king. Right, and so these men, these these men are standing before the king, and so the midrash says that this is like standing before Hashem on on the judgment day. Mm -hmm. And Yosef is when he asks the question because he already knows the answer to the question. He knows Jacob's alive, but when he asks the question, 
he is actually rebuking the brothers. How so? Hmm. And, and, and the sages say, in like manner, when we stand before the king of the universe, he will rebuke us for our misdeeds, not by listing out, here's, you know, you lied on this day, and you did, you stole on this day, and you did this on that day. You know, it's not going to be a list of misdeeds. Hmm. It's going to be a question. Hmm. And, and, and in this case, the question is, is my father still alive? And he, the idea in the Midrash is that what you did broke the heart of the father. Hmm. Uh, and it's a wonder that he's still alive because of mm-hmm. your sin. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you think about that, it, you know, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's really, uh, it's quite profound uh, because they're coming to the realization that we almost killed our father. Mm-hmm. Over over this, right? Mm-hmm. And they go on to talk about in the midrash that Aniosef. They actually say in, 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 the, in the midrash they actually say it's like he is um, Hashem. They say in this mm-hmm. case it's like Yosef is Hashem. It's like um, it's like when we stood at the foot of the mountain, right? And what's the first thing that Hashem says when he comes down on the, on the mountain? I am. I am the Lord your God, right? right. And it's kind of like the same idea. Aniyosef is this idea. It's like this idea that he he is kind of like God in that, in that moment, and he's rebuking them, mm. but he's doing it in a way that's not um, again. It's not judgmental in the sense that you know he's listing out everything they did bad, but he's getting them to to come to grips with the fact. With you know the pain that they caused yeah. the father, that's beautiful, and I think that's exactly what you get in this in this portion. Because at the end of our portion this week in the Kets, Joseph says that go up in peace to your father. In other words, you can leave in peace. Uh, he's giving them an out, but then Judah in the next portion, you're right. His response is, I can't do this not because I made a promise. I feel really bad about it. I'm going to deal with that. That's not going to be cool. His response is, lest I see the evil that will fall my father. His entire focus now is on Jacob. Joseph is giving them an opportunity to repeat what they had done before to him, where they didn't care about Jacob's response. All that mattered was protecting themselves and achieving their goals, or what they thought was right, at the expense of whatever it cost Jacob. But now, Joseph is saying, that's fine, you can all leave. I'll keep Benjamin, you go in peace to your father. Almost like, mm. as you mentioned, like hinting, the impunkai rebuke of, your father won't be at peace, but you can. And Judah says, no. The one thing I cannot do is see what that would do to my dad. And I think I have to have a message. In the account in next week's parasha, they're all, when, when he says, I am Joseph, imagine the, the emotion of that moment. Being having repented for 20 years and and the impossibility, the absolute impossibility that not only was your sin forgiven but everything has been made right it's impossible and so the correlation from Midrash of us standing before Hashem when we will realize that we have been forgiven from all of our sin it will be that same even magnified, that same shock this is impossible. Mm. There's no way this could have worked out like this 
It's completely the opposite of what should have happened. True. You also have, at this point, Yosef, who represents the the leader of you know of the sons of Rachel, right? Mm -hmm. And Judah, mm -hmm. who represents the leader of, of you know. And so you have a picture here of um, of Ephraim, as it were, Joseph and Judah, uh, the two leaders of those two households, and. Messiah ben Yosef and Messiah ben David. Right. Which, it's no coincidence, of course, next week's Haftorah is from the passage from Ezekiel, which is right. the two sticks, the, the stick of the stick of Judah, coming together. In. Because right here in Vayagash, they, they now are united. Mm -hmm. They're no longer at, at odds. And the two brothers who lead who will lead and, and do lead um, will uh, will come together. So there's a lot, a lot of stuff going on. And really, the, all of the, the last couple portions this week, next week, are all the whole, the, all these portions about Yosef are all just chocked full of. How can you not believe? <laughs> yeah, right. It's a really good one. Um, I think that wraps us up. We actually spent time talking about next week's portion, so we should probably should end before people fall asleep on me. So, sir, if you would close that prayer. Happy to do so. Good Father, we thank you for the word of God you preserved for us. We thank you for Judah stepping up and taking responsibility and offering himself as ultimately Messiah Yeshua would do. Father, we pray for these past, uh, these, these next coming days of Hanukkah, that, Father, we would be the light, recognize the light, and share the light with Messiah. With others, I pray that you would bless us today. Oh, Father, that you would be pleased with our rest as we come together in a couple of weeks. Bless those gathered to your Father. For their commitment to you, we pray these things. B'Shem Yeshua HaMashiach Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.